The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 187 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm Andy Bonello, pinch hitting for George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in this show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I'll never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I have been privileged to as a result of my current employment, I'll never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing I say during the show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone you can go to the online, go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and get a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, the very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to provide us latest, latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Well, folks, last week we had had another industry leader, CEO, and co-founder of Abnormal Security, Evan Reiser, joined me on episode number 186 of TF7 Radio. Evan discussed his career journey and the lessons learned uh, in each stage of his company's growth. I thought that was really cool, honestly. I think you're going to love that part of it. We also discussed how and why business email compromises cyber crimes most lucrative attack type and what companies can do to fight against it. Evan also weighed in on the future of artificial intel- intelligence and enterprise software. We finished up the show with his advice for new entrepreneurs. I think you're going to love that part too, folks. All this and much, much more on episode 186 of Task Force 7 Radio. If you missed it, folks, don't sweat it. We're on at least 11 different playback mediums. You can find us everywhere, folks. That's episode number 186, Combating Business Email Compromise on last week's episode of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, folks, we brought back renowned global CISO and privacy officer, Dr. Rebecca Wynn. Man, I got to tell you, Rebecca Wynn, she's been nominated Named Who's Who in Cybersecurity in 2021. She was named a Top 100 Women in Technology in 2021 by IBM, Women in Technology Business Role Model of the Year in 2018, Cybersecurity Professional of the Year in 2017, Cybersecurity Excellent Awards, Chief Privacy Officer by SE Magazine, and Privacy, Global Privacy and Security by Design, International Council Member. Dr. Rebecca Wynn is lauded as a game changer who is 10 steps ahead in developing and enforcing cybersecurity and privacy best practices and policies. She's a big picture thinker who brings over 20 years of experience in information security, assurance, and technology, well known for leading the information security, privacy, and compliance pre-acquisition, acquisition, and post-acquisition of LearnVest Inc. to Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, a Fortune 100 company leading the global security privacy compliance paradigm shift, redefining engagement of 24-7.ai through AI technology, technology magazine December of 2020, and the high trust certification matrix medical network and subsidiaries. Hailed for being a gifted polymath, having deep understanding of current cybersecurity challenges, privacy issues, award-winning track record of taking companies to the next level of excellence, excellence in many sectors, including government, financial services, fintech, healthcare, information technology, legal, semiconductors, and retail. It's my pleasure to bring back our friend of the show. She's been on probably five or six times. Love having her on. Renowned global CISO and chief privacy officer, Dr. Rebecca Wynn. 
Rebecca, welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio. Thanks, Andy. It's a pleasure to be here with my Task Force family. I love it. I love it. We love having you on the show. Appreciate you coming back tonight. What have you been up to? You got a lot going on. What's up? Well, I've been up to a lot. Um, still doing a lot of consulting. Been having a really great time doing that. That's from startups to, you know, Fortune 50 companies, a lot of um, venture capitalists looking at new products that are coming in, AI, stuff like that's just really cool. Um, here on the 21st, Cyber um, Ed Board, I'm speaking. I have another podcast that's coming up. Um, tell you what's kind of cool. I'm still working on that. Hopefully, COVID will let us do it. I'm going to be a moderator for an event in Rome, Italy. Nice. Um, London, England. I'm going to be their uh, feature keynote speaker, keynote speaker for an event here, uh, Women in Coding in Scottsdale. I have several magazine articles coming up. Finalizing my book deal, I have to just have the final <laughs> draft come in, um, and that is paid. It's not something that's just like uploaded myself. So that would be looking um, to probably be issued around June of 2022, which is really cool. And then you've probably seen a bit a lot of um, new advisory boards, the CyberWire, Cyber Theory, uh, obviously CS Hub, which is front of ours, um, HGM Strategy. So all in all, in 2021, it's been really cool. I've won three awards this year. I've written three eBooks, had five articles, and I've spoken in about 20 events. So it's been a really great year. <laughs> You're out there crushing it. I love it, Rebecca. Keep it up. So, you know, we're, you and I, we, when we chat, we always talk about, you know, the human aspect of cyber and, you know, the technology just kind of keeps getting invested in and we've got all these different, you know, tech we're trying to push. But, the, you know, it just seems to me like with, you know, the human aspect of what we do, you know, stress is high, tons of alerts, you know, the learning curve is always there. You're in incident response mode constantly. Like people are just burning out, you know, like they're stressed out, they're burnt out. You throw the pandemic on it, the whole thing, right? Um, and I know you've been spending a lot of time really focusing on the human aspect uh, over this last year. You know, can, can you share some of your most, you know, uh, meaningful stories of, you know, on the human side of things lately? Oh, absolutely. And, and you're so right. Um, burnout among um, chief information security officers is pretty high. It's not as much on CTOs or CIOs, but definitely on CISOs. I think part of it is we're asked to be a Sengali about everything underneath the sun. And companies can't make up their mind exactly what they want us to do. I saw a job description your day, which literally seemed like it was six pages and about a thousand different things that you're supposed to be able to do. Um, <laughs> But I, but I gave a, a recent commencement speech at the University of Advanced Technology. And, and if people don't know about them, you literally have to be able to, to do something that you do a patent on to be able to be um, to graduate. And, and you really actually have to be to put proof in the pudding. It's not just that, hey, we have, you know, a degree. And one of the things I was telling them is giving words of wisdom, looking back, is one of the things I would tell people is, is to give yourself a break. I think one of the things, especially in our field, is that, you know, it's it's every moment, every second, it's constantly changing. And, and at times it seems like nothing we do is ever good enough. And it's easy to translate that over into your real life too, because we're always on, right? When people say, hey, other, other company employees always say, hey, what'd you do on the weekend? You do X, Y, and Z. And we always have stuff in our mind. So one of the things I would tell people is try and give yourself a break and, and try to go ahead and, even if it's a piece of paper you keep to yourself and you destroy it, you know, what are the, the top three things that you really accomplished 
that day or five things. And sometimes it's, it's getting out of bed and, and, and making your bed. Maybe that was a great win for you, but to do that. And one of the things is just in day-to-day life, as you're thinking about, I was thinking about like when people, when they drive their car, you know, someone goes ahead and cuts you off and, and you get really irritated at them. I've done it myself and you get over in the right lane or left lane and you try and catch up with them because you want to look at them because you want to say, that's what I thought a person would look like who would cut me off. And, and they look back at you and go, that's what I thought who that nut would look like who's chased me down the road because, hey, <laughs> I accidentally cut you off. It, is give people a break. I mean, they probably actually clear their mirrors, you know, four or five times. And just that one second, you happen to get right there, even when you have the backup. So it's it's one of the things on giving each other the break. And I think as we go to work, that actually translates because people, I think, innately do the best they possibly can with the time and resources and information that they have at that time. And it's easy to get into a situation where you're coming with your own stresses and then thinking that people innately are just really trying to set you up or throw you underneath the bus. And, and so take a pause and to see what's really going on. And from a project manager standpoint, one thing is, is, is I tell businesses really need to take a look at those project managers. I've had time and time again, and other sisters I've talked to where we've gone into meetings and it's like, hey, the, you know, the security department or risk management or compliance or privacy, you guys have made this project late. And we didn't even know we're on the docket to deliver anything because no one talked to us about it. The project managers were put under pressure to fill in a date that something would be delivered, but we didn't even know about the project and we didn't even know that we were supposed to deliver anything. Um, and so obviously that's not being a good team member, but that's yeah. one thing when you, that, that we get hit with too many times as it is too. It's also interesting, right? When you think about, you know, the, the transformation work that most companies are going through. And, and by the way, a lot of that, I think is still like kind of, it's crazy to think that like it takes a solar winds. Like there's always a new one out there that another set of companies wake up to say, we got to go do something. Right. Um, but when that happens, you end up taking your most skilled people who have a really good day job and are really busy. And then you go, we're going to give you all these major special projects and you're requiring your top talent to go run you know, way more things that they were running before and now they're burning out. And then you've got that cascading effect of that morale, just, you know, being dra- drained right out of them. And then they get frustrated. And then the rest of your projects are suffering. Your major performers are suffering. Um, you know, what, what do you think leaders, other than, you know, making sure you free up the, you know, the, the OPEX to go, you know, hire PMs and get folks in there to help support these top talent people. But what, what can leaders do to best support their staff, you know, during these times? Yeah, that's a good question. I would tell you that I, I did work at a place that, um, you know, I did have an employee who was falling apart. I couldn't even ask that employee, you know, where, what's the status of the project before they were falling apart. And even though most companies have, um, employee assistance programs, which I'm very careful when I talk to one employee about it. I talk to all my employees about it. I remind them all. And I also then go ahead and anybody else who wants to come to the meeting can come to the meeting and, and where I reshare what that program looks like. So if you have stress in your life, you've just lost a family member, whatever it is um, that you have, that you can reach out there that they're there to support you. Because a lot of times we think that HR is going to do that. They don't. A lot of times you think that a link in an email doesn't. And then being able to go ahead and say, hey, you know, if you need me to help facilitate that, um, I'll help facilitate that so, you know, you can help connect them. I've had HR before when I've gone to them in that situation with an employee who was falling apart 
And I, I went to HR. I'm like, what do I do? This person literally is having a breakdown of some sort. And HR is just like, just tell them to go home. They were not helpful. And the one thing that I bring it back um, my personal life to tell people, especially as, you know, things about mental health and, and people struggling comes along. When I was in college, I um, grad school, I was walking home on a Friday and I saw a person on, on a, a bench and um, at the bus stop and I was walking past and I just stopped and I said, are you okay? You need to talk. And so I went ahead and I just talked to the person, didn't know him, went ahead and talked to them for a good hour and a half. And just because you need to follow your heart in the situations. And I was fortunate enough to run back into that person about a year and a half or so later. And they said, hey, do you have a moment to talk? And I said, sure, happy to do so. And they said, I wanted to tell you how much, you know, you brought meaning to my life. And I was just like, you know, I just talked to you and listened for an hour and a half. And they said, no, they said, I was actually on my way to kill myself. So I tell people a lot of times you just don't know what's going on in people's life. And a lot of times you just need to make sure that they know that they're being seen, that they're being heard. And I did go ahead and facilitate the person on campus. I actually did. At that point in time, I walked into the campus um, health center, waited with them as well to go ahead and get into some counseling services um, as well. And I tell people, you have stuff like that that's going on at work too. Um, and a lot of times people just need to know that you really, 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 really do care. And so, you know, Make sure you're aware of that. There's a lot of good hotlines and stuff like that that's out there, but take a moment. I think too quickly companies are in a place about, you know, you know, I would just tell you in, in December, I lost two family members right at Christmas. Very, very shocked. Um, very at the last minute. Um, and no one at work helped me. No one at work even reached out like going and you're balancing all these projects and you're doing all these Boku hours and you're dealing with all this personal stuff and you can't travel and you got to do virtual funerals because you know, Arizona is number one in the world right now with COVID. You can't even get there and the guilt and all that kind of stuff. They weren't there for me. So I tell people, be really in tune to that because a lot of times your employees maybe just need extra loving for the next month, two months or six weeks where you're looking about having them for five or 10 years. And consistently when I talk to other people there, it's the insensitivity, the uncaring that really has a resonation of that. And I'll give you a, another good example of that, which I thought was funny from the other day in the news, was Burger King um, had let go of several people and that really did stress out the employees quite a bit. They actually went up on the billboard sign for, for um, Burger King and they actually basically you know, said, hey, Burger King, you know, where you know, people, you know, we're all quitting or people yeah, I saw that. let go, which yeah. people, you know, yeah, we all quit. Sorry for the inconvenience. Um, but I tape it's the reputation management. It's a stress management and upper management obviously didn't like that. But but it's telling you that, that at least innately people aren't paying attention to the stress that people are feeling because the environment around people are changing more quickly. So two things on the human side, on just day to day people you might see that need to be able to be seen and that you care. And, and then at work, it's the same way. We see care and then being transparent, what's going on, even if you do go ahead and, and, and you need to lay off people, whatever, you need to be really transparent because pe- nobody likes fear, uncertainty, and doubt in their life. You know, there's kind of a couple of things that come to mind here. One is, you know, if talent and, you know, people aren't your number one operating priority as a leader, I don't know what you're focusing on. You know, like well, you're here. To, it's a privilege and an honor to lead people. And the only way to lead them is to get to know them at a certain level and to be available and to be, 
you know, giving of your time and be genuine. And it's like, I hear these stories all the time where like leaders don't know who their people are and, you know, they're not empathetic to what's happening around them. And it's like, how is that possible? Like, I can't even imagine, you know, being in a place and, and how employees must just feel trapped um, even though there's a tons of jobs out there, right? There's tons of jobs, but getting those jobs, and I know you and I want to dive into that in the next segment, right? Isn't always the easiest thing out there either because there's a ton out there. But because uh, I, I think what people are looking for is shifting and, and, and we, can got, we can dive into that. Um, and I think the, the other thing that you're talking about is just kind of putting yourself in other people's shoes for a minute, right? Don't be so quick to kind of react to judge, et cetera. And, and one thing I tell people a lot um, is ask themselves, you know, what, what was the gift of that interaction? Like it may have been, you know, an awful interaction with somebody, but you know, what was the gift? What did I get out of it? What was the positive out of it? Um, Cause you just, you know, there's always some, try to find something to come out of it so that you're not just adding to your own stress um, around that. So, so, Rebecca, before we go on break, I, I wanted to, you know, ask a, a quick question of you around recovery. We talk a lot about recovery on this show. Uh, what are some of the things that you do to kind of help you recover uh, and de-stress? Well, I'll tell you, what, during work, I'm not always good about it. And I'm actually coming off of having a, a right Achilles plantar fascia um, injury that I've been getting physical treatment on for the last six weeks. So probably weigh a little bit more now than I did six weeks ago. But even that during that point in time, I tell people, you got to love yourself and care about. But from a brain standpoint, I would tell people one of the things that's really important for us is, is it's tough, but you got to get to where we get to where sleep is your superpower. So one of the things is I wear a Fitbit and I notice that I can go for several days where I get three and a half, maybe four hours of sleep. However, I can't do that beyond that until I have like at least two days where I get like seven hours of sleep. I watch... I do stuff like, um, I don't care about doing a brand name out here. I do Alpha Brain. Alpha Brain um, is really um, giving your brain the food it really needs to actually fuel itself. I find it very helpful for me. I take one tablet in the morning. I go ahead and take like turmeric and Brahami and ashwanda. And I do my antioxidants. And you and I have talked about protein shakes and stuff along those lines. But I think part of it is realizing that our body is, is an energy um, energy source. And if you put too much junk in, the only thing it gave you back out is junk. So I think if you look at really the pioneers out there in technology, if you look at any of the top names out there and you look at what they eat and do day in and day out, they're always as a whole eating very healthy. They're always going ahead and getting some sort of meaningful exercise. And they're really, really detailed about getting their sleep and then dealing with the rest. And that's the one thing I think that we end up forgetting about doing that. And so I've been looking at more and more leaders over the last year about what their patterns are. And a lot of them, they've learned the patterns because unfortunately they've had a major health event in their life. Yeah. And definitely, they've, had, so definitely a they've had to get on that. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely a reactive thing. And I think you're, you're spot on, right? I mean, I think the work will be there tomorrow. Right. And, you know, just you got to take care of you before you can help take care and lead others. So, all right, folks, we got to transition to a commercial break. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio, your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram. by searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family on your favorite social media platform. 
For inquiries regarding sponsoring the show, the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email George directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7. That's the number seven, folks, radio.com. We're going to pause for quick messages from our sponsors, and we're right back with renowned global CISO and privacy officer, Dr. Rebecca Wynn. So whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure security-innovation.org or google signet s-i-n-e-t have you friended us on facebook yet why not just go to facebook.com forward slash voice america or search for the keywords voice america once you are part of our facebook network you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows this week's featured guests and new happenings at the voice america talk radio network and you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline just go to facebook.com forward slash voice america or search for voice america You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with renowned global CISO and privacy officer, Dr. Rebecca Wynn. Well, Rebecca, we teed it it up in the first segment, but I got to dig in here a little bit. Uh, Listen, supply chain, third-party risk management, there's been no shortage of continued breaches and and pressure on companies to to react and, and start to think about 
how they're going to fix this problem for themselves. And I'll be honest, and I, I got to get your, your opinion here, but I, I feel like companies just don't know what they want security for, right? And what they want the CISO to do, to be, and really what they're looking for. So what, what are you seeing out there? What's going on? Well, it is interesting. And I'm glad you said they don't really understand where they want the CISO to be. And, and there is a big push to avoid being the chief information scapegoat officer um, or the chief information um, status quo officer. But as specifically as you talk about third-party supplier management, it's always been there. I think one of the challenges has been for a very long time is, you know, what's our IT management? What systems are out there? What software is out there? How are people getting software into the environment? I think part of it is you have a lot of people who unfortunately are admins. They have the right, unfortunately, to go ahead and install software. If you don't think that's happening in your um, company at all, please um, hire me as a consultant. Let me find one for you because it probably is happening. You just don't know it. And, and with there, it just brings, it brings a lot of risk. So people, you know, it's, it's one of the things where I always tell people, you know, it's like when you talk about zero trust and you talk about the castle and the moat. Right. If we could go ahead and, and we only thought about physical security and we trust everybody inside the castle and I have this big enough moat and I have a drawbridge and I pull the drawbridge up and as long as someone can't make a ladder and get to me, we're all good. And, and that's just not the way it is anymore. Um, you know, bad guys and the farthest stuff is on the inside or you have inside people who make other connections from the inside. They make a drone. And so it's all about the east west sprawl as well as the north south. And when you talk about third-party supplier, a lot of times, if you don't realize that out there, what people say is that, oh, I trust this third party. And that third party says in their software, for example, that, hey, we need this directory to be able to run where your um, endpoint protection and antivirus and, and stuff like that can't touch it. And so the bad guys are smart. And what they're saying, cool, if we can go ahead and get our code embedded into the directory that you're going to be downloading software directly, putting in that directory, then I can run and do whatever I want from that directory. The other way that you see it is, you know, open source libraries. I've yet to ever work for a company who didn't go, oh, well, it's open source. I don't even worry about um, scanning it or testing it because um, it's going to take a lot of time. That's scary as well, too. Um, open source does not mean it's privacy, security, and risk and compliance um, okay. And it doesn't mean that someone can't put anything nefarious in there. You still have to do your due diligence, so it's been around for 20 years. It's just now people are going ahead and, and exploiting it on a big end. And then obviously they have a lot of money with the sponsored um, country actors um, to be able to attack that. So, but to be honest with you, it, I'm just surprised that it's taken this long to hit. Um, and then it, I'll just tell people, unfortunately, we got to watch every single place out there. So let me ask you the question. I mean, CISOs move around a lot, right? You get a couple of years in, you kind of take get to a certain level of maturity. Either there's some executive leadership change and the CISO moves on or they want to find their next gig, like whatever that is, right? But, but CISOs move every couple of years. And, you know, because, we, you know, they move every couple of years, I, I would argue that they probably don't build strong enough relationships with the ELT to actually have a seat at the table as a business leader, and how much of like what you're seeing out there, you know, as relates to, you know, your peers in the CISO world, um, you know, not being able to have that seat at the table at the level that they should have, you know, to be able to drive, you know, reduce risk and help the company make, you know, real business decisions. 
as opposed to talking about, you know, threat and vulnerability and everything else, right? No, that's an excellent question. I was actually speaking on a panel last week and a person brought up that Garner said that the average lifetime in a job for a CISO is 35 months. And they asked me personally what I thought. And I said, well, based on what? Um, you know, do you base it on a LinkedIn profile? Do you base it on um, when you see a person actually post that they're in a new job? You know, what's the reason for that? There's a lot of CISOs out there that I know who've had their jobs two, three, four, and five years, but they've been looking for their next opportunity for many years. And I think one of the reasons for that is that a lot of times we have a job description when we go into the job. And then we get excited about that, where we have a game plan in our head to do that. And then once we get hired in there, like the first three months, you know, if you're not drinking from the, the fire hose immediately and getting hit by a tidal wave immediately in the company, you're trying to figure out what the real business is and running the business. And to be honest with you, I've not run into too many CISOs unless you come from extremely older, well-established companies who have that kind of time frame to do that. Most of us who are in emerging technologies and things like that, we, you know, you're lucky if you get one day to catch your breath. But one of the things is, is then we find out after those first three months, then we're finding out going into the really the fourth month to the sixth month, that's when you start seeing people's attitudes a little bit start changing towards you. Um, you know, that for some reason you're holding things up, you, you're putting a pause because certain things weren't done before because maybe someone else was a status quo officer and you're saying, hey, we need to do this for regulations, contractual agreements and stuff like that. And then they start looking at six to nine months. If you can't get that tight change, you're like, crap, I'm going I'm to be put out here to dry. And obviously now in the United States, we can be looking at fines to us personally. We can be looking at jail time to us personally. And we could be looking at a career ending move that ends us because we weren't able to get a company to change. And so then you start seeing people saying, if I really can't make that tight change at all, then, then I'm really looking at the one who's possibly doing jail time or ending my career. So I need to be able to spin out. So I think part of it is finding company who has a mission that you line up with, a mission that they're not going to flip-flop on, and then a culture that will allow you to go ahead and move with, with them. And I, and I think that's where a lot of us are struggling right now is really lining up that way is really a challenge. And so we don't have the runway that CTOs or CIOs seem to have. Um, you know, we seem to want to be, have to be the Sigali at all points in time. And, and I've had companies where I've had, you know, one, one co-founder says you have to have zero risk at all points in time, but there's all this secret innate information that people are hiding from you, but it's on your head. And then I've had other co-founders like, well, we've been doing this for 20 years and I ain't going to change anything. And you're like, yeah, but you're totally putting your company at breach risk. So it's what I call it is it's a, you know, it's, there's never where we can have a positive sum paradigm. It's a win-lose all the time. And so it does come down on your head. And I tell people, if you're ever in that position, regardless who you are and what your title is, get out of that company. Because um, sometime you're, you're going to be the, the fall person for that. And I think that's the one thing that we, that we find as, as CISOs is they're like, yeah, hey, you're not running along with the business. But part of it is the business, maybe they're deploying stuff already with a mandate that that maybe they can have an 85 or 92% efficiency because they've already put all the press releases and stuff out. And then they know that they're going to go ahead and have a fix. And, and they've built all that into the contracts. But we're running on, you have to be 100% zero risk at all points in time. Our, our key objectives that our mandate is different. And so it puts us at odds with the business at times. So, 
Yeah, and zero risk, let's be honest, I mean, zero risk is never going to happen. So unless you take them off the internet, <laughs> it's never going to happen regardless. So, you know, how do we, how do we get, you know, the, the, the seat at the table? Actually, that's probably not right. Like, it's not about the seat at the table. Like, we, we, I think we just need to change the conversation to make it a risk conversation and, and make our conversation. I've been using, you know, looking at cyber economics a lot. We've had it on the show. We've covered it. Um, where, you know, we try to speak in, in the language of business, right? So we're not just this like offshoot security thing that nobody understands and, and no one can prove the value of. So what are, what are you seeing in the context of like translating cyber into business terms? And, and where are you seeing anything happen there? I'm going to tell you, um, startups that are coming out of the first startup mode around you know, five years, seven years going into that, you know, now we want to become a full-fledged company, go to IPR. We've really got some really good VC capital back behind us now. We want to grow. Those are, for me, like a good sweet spot because they do see that they have to get better, but they also know that you, you know, I'm always like Brene Brown. I'm always like in the arena. I'm always failing, failing forward. Those guys get that. It's not about being perfect. It's about recovery, moving forward, learning from what happened before and, and not moving out of fear. I think that's the part that we have to get the sweet spot. And like you talked about the executives, I think part of it is the old school KPIs. Who cares what your mean time to remediate is? Remediate what? Right. right? You know, I, you have 15,000 endpoints and you have 20,000 patches that weren't applied. And the risk associated is what? I think part of it is the KPIs are just nuts. I think you need to be looking at, from an enterprise risk management standpoint, what is the true risk to the company by not doing X? Because that's how the business thinks about, right? And I'll give you an example. When we were looking at um, COVID, obviously doing where I was doing with PCI, I wasn't in buildings anymore. I obviously had 10,000 satellite offices at home. Our contracts didn't call for 10,000 satellite offices. So part of it was, was what, what I could do to try and mitigate the risk to the best of our possibility with everybody globally running with their heads chopped off a bit. And then getting instead with, with our back with our clients and saying, here's the amount of additional risk that you guys would need to accept for this period of time because I can't meet that original contract. Right. So I think part of it is, is you know your you know OKRs or whatever you want to call it, but the key objectives and and what is the true results? We need to get to that conversation instead. And I think in the return on efficiency and the return on the investment is also where we need to be leaning. Yeah. Do, do you think that a lot of companies like initially sign up for a CISO because they feel like it's you know helpful for their cyber insurance, and then now there's a shift into you know, they need to be at the seat, you know, at the, at the table, make, being a, you know, a real business leader. Um, what do you think? I think it dep- well, I think it depends on the sector and it also depends on the maturity of the company. If a contract comes in and says, oh, we need to now name a CISO. I've had companies who the person who puts the asset tag on the laptop now has a CISO title. Wow. Um, I've had companies where it's like, you do, you do business in GDPR, you need to have a data protection officer. Oh, well, let's go ahead and name our data scientists as data protection officer. They don't know anything about it. Or I've had general counsel who's also chief compliance officer. And then 
they don't know anything about the rules and regulations around the world and stuff like that about privacy or compliance, but because they're general counsel, they think that they need to have, have the title. I think that's part of the thing is too, is, you know, people have heard me talk before it's checkbox compliance versus reality, you know, and, and if people don't understand that when you talk about, you know, I got that contract because I named someone a data protection officer, check the box. But if hell's bells hits, you don't have the person in the role who literally can lead you through that issue. Um, and there's, a, there's an extra cost associated with that um, to be able to do that. And that's the other thing I see there where people are starting to go to junior people and people who don't, who don't have a lot of experience and they're hoping and praying that it's going to be okay and that people will go ahead and forgive them. So those are the kind of trends along those lines. I think it's very dangerous. It can be very good for us, but it can be very dangerous for us. We're kind of like still, you know, the bastard child, uh, unfortunately. I wish there was a better way for me to say it right now, but they don't know where to put us. Are we really the chief information security officer? What does that mean? Does that mean you're, you're the cybersecurity strategist? Does that mean you're the cyber product security officer? Does that mean that you're really the field security officer that's going to be helping customer support? You're going to be helping marketing and sales and maybe engineering for, for features and products? Are you just an instant responder? I would just say an instant responder is not a chief information security officer. Are you really the security architect? Well, then you're the security architect. You're not the chief information security officer. So part of it is, is what do they really need? And then what about the trust officer, right? All those are roles too. So I think it's a point where it's just the role itself being called chief information security officer may or may not line up in what the company is really looking to achieve. Um, and if they're only looking from a checkbox standpoint, they're going to be a problem. And then one of the ways that you look at that is, is when you're looking at job descriptions, someone says, I want someone in who's chief information security officer, artist strategy, architect, heads up of IT development, and then just reads on the laundry list that you, no matter how many years of experience that you have, unless you have an unlimited budget that you can go ahead and go out there, hire other specialists and stuff like that to assist you, you're never going to be able to meet the criteria. So be careful of that. I, you know, I don't yeah, think that answers the question. Well, I think it's indicative of companies still struggling to figure out like, what do they want a CISO to help them do? Like they know they need it and they know the role's valuable, but they, they still struggle with, you know, kind of setting the stage for what the CISO is going to do when they get there, what the expectations are. And I think they're just kind of hoping the CISO is going to come in and tell them what they need to do. And that's cool for a little bit, but then you get that after those first 12 months or whatever it is, where they're like, you know, three months. <laughs> yeah. You become, you know, you become institutionalized, right? Like you're, you're, the, you're the person that they, you know, they're going to want that external assessment, you know, pretty soon. Right. And just start to look at that. And I think that that becomes a factor, um, you know, because you get hired at almost like as a consultant, but then over time, you know, you, you still need that external validation and it becomes confusing for folks at times. Um, but look, I think if we could get to a place where um, companies truly understand what they want the goal of the CISO to be and have that dialogue, um, you know, before the CISO comes in, I think you, you can have better success. Uh, but I think we got to do a better job also of just kind of um, translating what we do into business terms to make it more palatable. And, and hopefully, you know, between both sides, <laughs> figuring it out, we'll, we'll, we'll have a better um we'll be in a better, better position going forward. 
And I would say that there's also a push out there in our professional circles, as you know, is that walk away from a bad situation because that literally just gives everybody in the industry um, a bad name. And if companies aren't mature enough to really be treating our position with the respect it deserves and the support that it deserves, it'd be better for you not to take that position, walk away. There's good companies out there who want to be in a good track and then let that company deal with it, whether they want to go ahead and, 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 and go ahead and get a visa so or something like that, but don't put yourself into those situations. Um, think better of yourself and think better of us as professionals um, to walk away. That, I think that's also the way to do that is that we have to go ahead and with internally ourselves, like you said, start putting that, that standard together and making that excellence. And if the company is not going to support you, believe in yourself enough to walk away. Yeah. And you're going to know right away too, right? I mean, when you start to get to a place where you're, you're putting risk decisions on their table, where they're basically, you know, and if we're public companies, at least, you know, fiduciary responsible, you know, for, for making these decisions, you know, you're going to find out real quick if they want to support you or if they, if they don't, or if they just need a, time, a little more time to figure out what's the best way to support you uh, with a little more education. So I think, you know, getting that, those conversations where you're shifting the risk acceptance to, or risk, you know, sign off is really, really key. So you're not the only one holding the bag later on, but, um, you know, tricks of the trade, I guess, right? Yeah. And I just tell people two, two kibbits on this, the same thing is if you need to have a risk acceptance form and no one else in the company will sign it, flag. And if you're in, if you're in HIPAA, PCI, you know, FINRA, some of these other type of stuff, and you see that you have an audit and as soon as that third-party audit happens, they undo all the controls because they think it was a one and done. And now we get our get out of free jail free card. Um, also, both both key signs that that you need to move very very quickly. Yeah, that, that, I, I, that, I, I, I would say the other thing I know we talked earlier about this was um, you and I privately is if you have a company from a project management standpoint that you find yourself where you get on the hook for projects that you never know anything about. Um, and they're not going to change that conversation. You're being set up for, for failure. And, yeah. and if they're not going to change that tie, go ahead. And, and that's another time, another quick cue that you should, you should move on. There's, there's better opportunities out there for people who, who want to, to have privacy and security and compliance and enterprise risk management by design um, and help you be one with the business. Um, those other ones are just, they're still in yesteryear. And unfortunately for you, that just can be really a career-ending move to remain with those type of companies. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's so true. Make sure you're in the right situation, folks. All right, we got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors. Don't go away. We'll be right back with more from renowned global CISO and privacy officer, Dr. Rebecca Wynn. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. 
By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure security-innovation.org or Google Sinet S-I-N-E-T Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with renowned global CISO and privacy officer, Dr. Rebecca Wynn. All right, Rebecca, we've talked a lot about cybersecurity. It's time to put the privacy hat on. You ready for this? Yep, got my hat on. That's what I'm talking about. All right, give me the latest. What's going on in the privacy space since you're so tuned to it? What's up? Well, a couple of cool things have been happening and some things have been delayed. I think most people um, listened to me last time that I was on when I talked about the EU-US privacy shield. And, and I told everybody I didn't think it was going to go quite as quickly <laughs> as people were hoping that it was going to do. And they did do that. Um, this, just a couple of days ago, they did have another meeting. And um, the EU Justice Commissioner um, Reiners, he said the next privacy shield is now years, not even months away. So still look for that. The data um, sharing agreements, um, really not in place, but everyone just keep um, tracks that we still in the United States still go through um, the privacy org. We still go ahead and, and make sure we still do our paperwork. We have always done our paperwork with the FTC and all that kind of stuff, but they're working on it. Um, they're not at square one, but they haven't come up with the new version yet. And remember, the goal there is to come up with the version that we're not doing this every couple of years. So they're trying to be mindful of that, but 
Um, it's now years away. 2020, unfortunately, um, delayed that a little bit more than we thought it would be, but just keep an eye on that. Couple cool things with the California um, CCPA, which really GDPR too. I really like the Global Privacy Control Browser. And if you don't know what that is, that's the signal that you can have within your browser that says, hey, do not sell, I object to processing. There's several sites that actually use that. That's for example, like Washington Post, um, I think New York Times, DuckDuckGo, Privacy Browser, who I personally use. One trust and many, many others support it. But I, I want to make sure everybody remembers though that when it says, hey, accept all cookies, no, still go in there. I noticed that the other day where someone, I always have like restrict to like minimal essential cookies. But it, but when I looked at the granular, if I wouldn't have paid attention, um, instead of defaulting them still off, what they did is you'll see that it highlighted that you went into your settings and you say, hey, these are the only ones I was going to allow. But if you just clicked and you said, go ahead, it would go ahead and say, oh, and you just allow these other three marketing and you just allow this other analytics and you still do this. So make sure you open those up just to make sure that they're not going to attempt to turn on anything. But anyway, that's still really good. And again, that's for um, GDPR, CCPA, Australia and some others are actually bringing that out. So I, I like that. The other thing I think is one to watch and I'm not getting political, but it's the lawsuit with Donald Trump. And even though Everyone's saying it's it's a First Amendment privacy privacy issue. What we're really talking about is when you look at Facebook and YouTube and Google and Twitter and a lot of these other sites, should they have the right to restrict what is said and what is not said on their platforms? If they're considered a media platform, then there's some rules and regulations around that. But really, these are individual companies. But nowadays compared to back like in 2012, 2010, people are using them as their foremost um, news sources. A lot of people are, not me personally, but a lot of people are doing that. So even though he'll probably lose it on the grounds of First Amendment issues, it is bringing up the discussions on, are they categorized right, not categorized right, and what should they be looking worldwide go forward. And you see that with Ireland, you see that with EU and the stuff that's going on with Facebook and stuff like that. So see that continue to grow. But I think that's a great conversation because everybody should remember that when you go to any of these sites that are private, they have a blacklist and their blacklist has here's words, here's articles, and here's stuff like that, that we've determined that we just don't want you to see because it's our personal platform. And so if you use only one platform, you might not be getting the true picture because maybe they're dropping something off because their users don't like to see it or something like that. So that's something I think people should keep a watch on. Again, it's not about Donald Trump as a person. It's about the concept of that. And you also saw that when you looked at uh, WhatsApp and face Facebook, and then you went ahead and you saw that WhatsApp changed their privacy um, regulations. And then many people like myself left WhatsApp and we went to Signal. So those are type of things I think you need to really watch that and then always watch it that, that you, to the best of your ability, get the full news that you want to get and you want to get the full uh, media experience that you want to, to get, just be aware of that. So where, where do you see, like if you're looking over the horizon, like where do you see this, where do you see this going? Well, um, technology wise has a lot of really cool stuff. Um, and if you're not familiar with, with Altos out there, the France come out, I would say they have some really, really cool papers out there. So I always suggest people to go out there. We get used to just looking at AT&T and Verizon and, and some other people like that out here, Proofpoint. But I tell people Altos, um, A-T-O-S, take a look at them too. Um, but one of the things I think that we're still going to be looking at 
a lot of the swarm computing, which we've seen. Um, we saw that with all the political elections and stuff along those lines, but while we look at edge computing and we look at processing power and, and how we can go ahead and, and affect a lot of different areas, I still think that we're going to be seeing that, but now you're going to be seeing it. How can you do that through a multi-cloud aspect where before we've seen it by using like individual bots that might've been like on one cloud to another cloud. But I think that you'll see the swarm instances be a lot um, more temporal infrastructures. And I think you'll see them going back and forth between multiple clouds. So that's one thing that that's going to be looking at. Again, what could be used for good, could be used for evil. Still the self-adapted security, but still part of kind of like the zero trust model with the, you know, who has privileged access, who doesn't have privileged access, what services and things like that along those lines. But as we look at, you know, security operation centers and SIMS and EDR and being in, in different data centers and stuff like that, how can we adapt as quickly as possible to flag things that are nefarious or systems or services that are nefarious and get them turned off very quickly and how can we go ahead and use each other to be able to flag each other? That was the good thing that was um, with some of the more recent hacks that we just had, um, solar winds and all that stuff, is that we saw people on a global government um, collaborate. We saw global companies collaborate to go ahead and try and get that under control globally. I think you're going to, when we look at self-adaptive security, we're also going to see a lot more of those global collaborations along those lines. A couple of other cool things is the privacy enhancing technologies. Those are the, the pets that you see. So when we talk about how we're gonna be masking data, how we're gonna be protecting our, our privacy, how we're gonna go ahead and look at, at customers, how we're gonna go ahead and what can you do from an AI perspective, not an AI perspective. What do you really consider more privacy information, not privacy information, your geolocation, stuff like that. As we get quantum computing, which is also another big one, I just was doing some stuff with HP, and those computers get bigger and faster and easier to crunch data and more data and data brokers. No matter how much you try to keep it away from you, people are quicker and quicker being able to link that back to you um, as an identifier. And so what's really going to happen around that? Um, and how, what privacy is going to be exposed by people just linking congratul aggregated data. And if you go ahead and link maybe three aggregators together, now it's back to your core data where it used to be seven or eight. And what is the laws and regulations around that going to be? Um, that also kind of ties into invisible computing, which is also what's, what's really on the horizon, is, is how can we go ahead and even keep you know, when we look at the, all the advanced machine learning that's going on um, and integrating into our day-to-day -day lives, and that becomes basically so part of our our day-to-day -day that we kind of forget about it. Yeah, but it's how do we, constantly, yeah. right? I mean, it's nonstop. <laughs> the yeah. data being, you know, aggregated, analyzed, and used for you know a whole host of things. But a lot of it is to make sure that you know you're getting the right experience as a as a user, but you know, where, where does that become harmful, right? And it's going to be interesting to see where that goes. Well, because you give up all your rights, too. And, you know, that's the one thing, too. If you have an Android system, you know, you look at behind services. I don't everyone else, but I do that every time. There's an update. Look at privacy and terms and conditions and the console are changing. I, I know it's a pain, but you really got to read that. You got to read what are they going to be turning on compared to before. Everybody assumes that, and it's on the iPhone, too that they go ahead and they assume that, oh, the original that I got this application, they only had these permissions. A lot of times when you get the new update, 
they add more permissions and you need to make sure you can cut them off. And if you can't cut them off, maybe you need to go ahead and disassociate with them. But just keep in mind, if you have a smartphone, if you use a computer, you have data that is streaming out about you, even though you try to keep all of it secret. So one of the things is just, you just got to watch that and then, you know, take part on when we have these forums and suggestions and people say, Hey, make your voice heard and stuff like that about, Hey, I don't like you. You know, when I'm not even using my system that you're still, I'm offline and I'm being connected to the internet and I'm looking at my family photos, you're still collecting all the metadata on that. And as soon as I connect to the internet, you're sending them off to a carrier to the aggregate, you know, you know, Rebecca looks, likes to look at puppy dogs, you know, on her cell phone. And so give her, you know, pet food or whatever in advertisements. We really have to stay on top of that as individuals, unfortunately. And then the one last thing I'll bring on that that's kind of cool. If you haven't, this just actually recently came out too. Um, I would say it's long. It's like 140 pages. And um, it's the new AI standardization landscape. That's the um, EC proposal on the AI regulatory framework. That's kind of a cool, cool thing that's just recently been. Um, yeah, that'll be interesting. Is, that'll be cool. Yeah, that'll be very interesting. Well, Rebecca, as always, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Oh, always love being here in Task Force 7 with my family here and love to be back again someday. No doubt we'll have you back for sure. All right, folks, time for us to bounce up and out of here. But before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to get a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.